Hello and welcome to Data Driven, the podcast where we explore the emerging, wait a tick. This is the premiere episode of season 5. Can you believe it? Data Driven started four years ago this month. Up until last season, we had a human doing the voice over work. That is until she was replaced by an AI, yours truly. In this episode, Frank and Andy speak to Dave Wenzel about why you don't need a data warehouse. We're starting off the new season with a bit of contrarian tone. It's a lively back-and-forth conversation that runs contrary to prevailing wisdom. Don't say we didn't warn you. Now on with the show. Hello and welcome to Data Driven, the podcast where we... Wait a minute. We've been saying this, Andy, for four years now. Can you believe it? Four years. That's crazy talk. That's just craziness. And I think when you and I first talked about this, and that was that fateful... Uh, I think it was December. It was right after Thanksgiving, but before Christmas. Yeah. yeah. Um, I was thinking about starting a podcast. And um, as a data scientist, I needed someone that was a data engineer that could kind of round out <laughs> the talent uh, there. Um, and um, and obviously, I wanted someone I knew, liked, and trust. And so it was you. Well, um, I'm much- just glad all of the real smart data engineers you knew were busy. That's all I got to say. Oh, no, man. You were the first one I reached out to and the only one I would have uh, done it with. It's, uh, I was delighted when you said yes, because starting a podcast can sound like a daunting thing, particularly if you haven't done it before. Yeah, neither one of us really had. And um, gosh, it's it's worked out. What are we up to? 180,000 downloads or something? I mean, that's... Something like that, about 180,000 downloads. I mean, yeah. we're not Joe Rogan. No, but that's okay. Yep, yep. <laughs> uh, but you know what? We we we've impacted, I think, the community in a significant way. We've we've done a number of things. We've we've uh, innovated how we podcast. Um, uh, we we've actually managed to keep a good cadence, with some exceptions. Yeah. I think um, so. you know, we we finally did earlier this year or late last year, kind of fulfill our vision of it being data driven TV. Uh, yes. when we actually interviewed guests on, um, on video. And, uh, that was, uh, that actually delayed the launch of the show by about three months. <laughs> it did, but also, um, yeah, that was interesting. Um, but you know, it's typical software development, right? You release a feature and then you debug it. Yeah. I have this saying about that, Frank, all software is tested, uh, some Sometimes. intentionally. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. But I also yeah. like how 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 both our careers have evolved over the last four years. Oh, and, yes. um, you know, this being the premiere um, uh, episode of season five, and we have something special lined up. But I'll get to that in a minute. Dude. Uh, you've progressed in your career. We, you and I have worked on some some projects together, virtual summit, uh, what we're calling Ringgate, which we'll announce very, very soon. Um, and, uh, but, but most of all is been my kind of skilling up and transition into data engineering myself, mm-hmm. which, uh, was something that when I joined, so this is a, just a job update about a year ago, I, I left the, uh, role of Microsoft kind of field sales and I went into the Microsoft technology center. Stick with me. There's a point to the story. Um, and, um, basically I was, uh, at the rest in MTC. 
And uh, basically, I was the AI guy on my, my, my field sales team, but I didn't really have deep knowledge of kind of the typical, typical data engineering type uh, work that goes into uh, that role. And basically, my, my, my then manager said, you know, he's like, hey, you know, if you want this role, you got to skill up. And uh, skill up, I did. And with Andy's mentoring and a bunch of uh, other folks that helped me kind of skill up on our the data engineering side, I looked at it this morning. I'm like 88 hours on Plural Site. Wow. And that was from mid May till we're recording this on April 30th. So just about a year. Yeah. 88 hours. Uh, right now, I'm tracking on about 204, 205 consecutive days of getting on LinkedIn. Uh, not on LinkedIn, on Plural Site, LinkedIn Learning. I also have a number of courses too. Um, that is something I'm proud of in terms of career evolution. Absolutely, Frank. You should be. How many certs are you up to now? I uh, eighty-seven. Slacker. I, I think I've got four. <laughs> <laughs> no, I know you and I did the data engineering thing, so you have at least That's eleven. True. That's true. We did that one, and uh, you know that was. It's just. It's just been a nice journey, and um, I'll take credit for this because because I can. I was uh, I was actually pestering you years ago. We've been friends since two thousand five, and we started doing uh, code camps here in the Richmond area together, and, and co-founded, re-co-founded Richmond SQL Server Users Group, and you know worked with the .NET Users Group and stuff. And I told you as soon as I saw some of your graphic art. And Frank would do a keynote for the Richmond Code Camps, and every time he would make movie posters. Oh, yeah. The one that still sticks out is one called Devs on a Plane. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah, I love that one. That was so, so cool. And, you know, I saw the graphic arts part of it, and I just knew I said, you'd be really good in analytics and data visualization. You should get into BI. And you were busy doing other stuff, which was cool. You were good at that, too. It wasn't, you know, I don't know of anything you've done that you haven't mastered. But well, thank you. You know, you when um, things took a took a started taking a turn for you in your first rodeo at Microsoft, um, you got into it and, and took off with it. I, don't, I won't tell the story uh, well, but you just really turned around. You focused on data and um you know, I'll say this, Frank. I was right. <laughs> well, I will say totally. I, I, I think if anything, I took away is I should have listened to Andy ten years earlier. Um, <laughs> and that um, that that is something that 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 that's the big takeaway. We will talk about kind of that journey because I think that's worth kind of talking about. And I think one of the things we, you and I, have been bouncing around is kind of interviewing each other. Like and asking yeah. each one of us those 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 questions we have. So we, we definitely to. will do that, but not today. Today, today we have a special guest. We have Dave Wenzel. Dave Wenzel is a was a peer of mine when I worked at the uh, Microsoft MTC. And that reminds me, I no longer work in Microsoft. Two weeks ago was my last day. I turned in my second blue badge and I joined a startup called Electrify. We'll talk about them a later day, but I'm so excited to have Dave here. Dave is the data and AI architect out of the Philadelphia Microsoft Technology Center. And he's an awesome guy, awesome guy to work with. Uh, I worked with him when I was in field sales and I worked with him when I was in the MTC organization. It is a priv- It was a privilege and honor, Dave, to have you as a colleague. And it's once again, a privilege and an honor to have you here as a guest on Data Driven. Well, thank you so much. Appreciate that. Welcome, Dave. Thank you. 
so um, so for, for folks that don't know what the MTC is, uh, shocking that there are actually people that don't know what that is. What What is the MTC? Uh, so basically, we're a free service uh, to our customers. And I'm a data and AI uh, technology architect. We talk to customers about data. And it could be anything from just, you know, hey, here's what we're doing state of the art in Azure with with data, uh, but it could also be architectural design sessions where we talk to customers, our customers bring us their architectures and then we kind of vet it with them, uh, give them the pros and cons, uh, alternative ways of thinking. And then what I really enjoy doing is hackathons with customers uh, and workshops and just you know helping them to learn without just taking a course somewhere. So actually using their data. And then uh, I, I guess I'm roughly a data scientist, so we also do design thinking sessions, and those are absolutely a lot of fun. Uh, we did one at the MTC with uh, CSL Baring a couple of years ago, and it actually won a Forrester Award, so I'm very proud of that one. Oh, wow. Um, wow. And yeah, it's it's uh, it's a lot of fun, and it's a good way to bring uh, to have executives and business people understand the actual capabilities of data science, and then within two days be able to come up with a use case and, and actually build a prototype out. A lot of fun. Yeah, the MTCs are definitely like Microsoft's secret weapon in terms of how, because, you know, uh, although I will say, and because we were in the DC and we dealt with a lot of government contracts, we could not say that they were a free service. They were an already included paid for service. <laughs> That's much, much better said, yes. Because I, 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 I said free once and I got kind of slapped on the hand. Like, Don't say that. <laughs> Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, it, it really is something that if you do have a Microsoft account team and you are encountering any kind of questions or, or, or whatever, uh, and it's not strictly technical, there's also pretty good, you know, we basically would in, engage with uh, business development, uh, business decision makers, technical decision makers, all the way from kind of like, you know, hey, this is what Azure can do. This is what data can do for you all the way down to, okay, what's your problem? Let's build something out. Give you three days with one of the top-notch architects in the space, and um, you know, boom, you know, we knock it out. And and you know, I I enjoyed it. Um, you know, had this opportunity not come, I would I would have gladly stayed another you know five ten years at the MTC, uh, like a lot of people do. And uh, it, it's a fun organization. So uh, with that in mind, uh, today we're going to do something a little different. We're kind of doing the uh, contrarian approach. Is that right, Dave? Yes, exactly. So this this has actually come up. One of my last this is one of the things that intrigued me about about your idea for the show was this came up when I was working with a uh, we'll just call it a large governmental agency known for its red tape. Um, that that should keep it generic enough. Um, uh, they basically came to us and say we want Synapse, we want a data lake, we want this, we want that, and I was like, okay, well, how much data are you talking about? And they're like, oh, we have maybe you know, five, maybe 20 gigs of data. And I'm like, uh, okay, <laughs> tell me what are you trying to do? And ultimately I kind of pitched the idea like, look, you, you don't have that much data, right? To, to make Databricks worth it, but you really want it. So <laughs> if you really want it, I won't stop you, but I think it's kind of overkill. I think you're taking, instead of using a steak knife to cut the steak, you're using a chainsaw. And yeah. You know, they kind of came back and ultimately what won the day was they already they couldn't get approval for whatever we recommended because it didn't get stamped by their their people for security usage yet and things like that. So they ended up doing kind of the right thing because of their own bureaucracy, which is kind of weird. It's kind of like dividing by zero and seeing the universe fold in on itself. <laughs> <laughs> 
But um, so the, the topic of today is kind of like, no, you don't need a data warehouse. Did I get that right? Exactly. That's what I believe in, and I believed in it since I was in college, and I first learned about data warehouses. Uh, I'm not saying data warehouses are always bad. Uh, they definitely have their use cases. But in 2021, when we're talking about adva advanced analytics and we're trying to tell customers you need to be more predictive and prescriptive, the data warehouse really doesn't deliver. Really? How so? Because that's that's totally not the certainly not the party line. I'm not going to say which party it was. <laughs> you can figure it out. Um, but but why? Why? Why would you say that? OK, so take a step back here. Right. Uh, we're all data consultants or we were at some point in our life and probably most of the listeners are. And if you've been doing this, I've been doing this uh, since the mid 90s in college. And uh, when I first started, um, I had an internship with a consumer packaged good company. They make candy bars. And they said, hey, we want you to do an internship and take a look at our data and figure out where is the best spot to put candy on a shelf so that we sell more candy to kids, right? So we use data for that. At the time, that was known as business intelligence in the industry. Nowadays, business intelligence means something totally different. In reality, it's really closer to what today we would call data science, right? So my tools of choice were SQL, although I didn't know what SQL was at the time, and we had this goofy SQL engine, uh, and, and, and essentially something called SPSS, which is roughly the equivalent of like R or a stats package, something like that. And we kind of looked at data as just, you know, I have data, and let me find the nuggets of gold, and I'm not going to concern myself with schema. Uh, and that is, I think, the biggest problem with data warehouses. But take a, you know, a meta layer higher, right? Talk to the average business executive, like, a, you know, a CTO or CEO, and tell them as a consultant, you're going to go in and build them a data warehouse. Instantly, that's a political statement you just made. Data warehouses have connotations of, you know, risky projects, over budget projects as far as time and money. Uh, and, you know, a lot of times they fail and executives don't want to hear that. Uh, so we've learned interesting ways to avoid the conversation of of calling things a data warehouse. You know, we call them other things in the industry to try to avoid that connotation. Uh, but, you know, ultimately, that's a problem. And, you know, there's reasons for that. But most executives don't know why data warehouses are risky. They just know, hey, we try building a data warehouse every seven years and it tends to fail and we're not really sure why. So we're going to avoid it. And even companies that have successful data warehouses, and there are many, uh, you know, they have problems, you know, adding new features to data warehouses. Um, and, and again, that's problematic. So they avoid that conversation as much as possible because of the, the risk. Um, but when you stop and look at it and just interrupt me at any time with questions uh, or, you know, a pushback, especially uh, when you look at it, like why did our data warehouses particularly problematic and why do they, they they fail and have a lot of risk? And I mean, I've been doing this for many, many customers over many years, and I've kind of seen the patterns when you take back uh, when you step back and you, you think about this, um, you know, with a little bit of introspection. And I'll tell you, I've I've. I've narrowed it down to three main causes. One is we spend a lot of time doing requirements gathering. The number two is we spend a lot of time doing data modeling. And number three is we spend a lot of time doing ETL. Uh, and I can avoid all of that, uh, or most of that anyway, if I just don't do it and I do something else uh, instead of the data warehouse. So I'll walk you through a use case here. Okay? That's interesting. No, I, I now, now I see where you're coming from. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but now I kind of see where you're coming from. But yep. 
I have billions of questions are formating in my head, but go ahead. Well, let, me, let me give you a canonical use case. Okay. Uh, you're a consultant uh, or you're a data professional. Some analyst comes up to you and says, hey, I need a report that shows X, Y, and Z. Help me build it. Right. So first thing you do is you go out and you say, well, that data for X, Y, and Z doesn't currently exist in our data warehouse. Right. Well, actually, take a step back. First thing you do is a whole lot of requirements gathering. Right. Well, what do we what do we need this data? Where are we going to get it from? What if we can't get the data? Uh, you know, um, all these kind of questions. How are we going to massage it into formats we need? It's a lot of requirements gathering. So put that aside. Right. The next step is what's the first thing you do? OK, well, you say, where am I going to stick this data ultimately so I can report off of it? Right. And again, if 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 you guys don't do this that way, that's great. Um, but this is a common pattern that I see anyway. So they'll say, all right, well, we need to figure out where it goes in the data warehouse. So we have these couple pieces of data yet. Uh, and I don't know, do they go in the fact table, the dimension table? Which dimension table do we even have the dimension we need? Should we use a junk dimension? And this becomes religious arguments with data modelers, and I can't stand data modeling. And then bring in the slowly changing dimension type two discussion. And oh boy, that just knocks everything off the rails. So data model. Okay. Then the next thing is you say, okay, I need to, now that I have a data model, I know that I have this data somewhere. So I need to bring in an ETL developer that's going to get it from somewhere into the data warehouse. Now the data is in the data warehouse, right? Uh, and that ETL process takes some time, right? Potentially days, weeks, and months to do that code. And then we say, okay, you know, if we're following, you know, Inman or, or, or uh, the Kimball method, we might have data marts at this point. We might have analysis services cubes. And then we have a presentation tier where we show the report and that's Power BI, right? It's only at that point when we can take the report back to that person that requested it, the analyst, and say, hey, we, here's your data. Here's what you asked for. Tell me how much of a good job I did. And, and invariably what happens, they look at it and say, well, this isn't at all what I asked for. And why did it take you three months to do this? And or they'll say something like, well, our requirements change. We don't need to see that anymore. We need something else. Anyway, you slice and dice it, you're back to the drawing board, right? So it's not a good approach and executives see that. So what's the answer to this, right? And I'll you know, I'll cut to the chase. I think the way you do it, okay, is you do something like a data lake, okay, but don't get hung up on terms, but it's something like a data lake. So let's just take a step back and say, well, how would the project work if I were a data scientist doing it instead of a, you know, more of a business intelligence type person uh, that does ETL and data modeling and things like that. All right, so how's a data scientist do it? Okay, here's how I would do it and how I've always learned to do it. We don't do any requirements gathering or data modeling or anything until I get some data. Why do we talk about data? Why aren't we just looking at data? So the first thing you do is go out and get data. Now, sometimes that's hard to do, okay? Because uh, you may not necessarily have the data yet because it's a new product that's going to be generating data. So we have to start thinking about proxies in the data, things like that. But forget about all that. Let's assume we can get the data from somewhere. So we get that data and we stick it into this data lake thing, okay? And we just land it there. Right now, uh, and I love to do hackathons with customers on this next thing. We take that data in the data lake and I sit with the business analyst and we start talking about it. What is it you really want to see? What is that nugget of gold? And we talk about it and we look at the data 
and we massage the data and we take the data and we join it with other pieces of data we may already have in our data warehouse, whatever it is, right? And we're constantly learning about that data. Uh, so when we're sitting side by side, I'm learning about the business because I probably know nothing about the use case. And they're learning about what my thought processes are as a data scientist. And a lot of times we'll find just as a side note that the business analyst that sits with me, they look at the code we're writing and we have tricks to, to write this code. We use these interesting things called Jupyter Notebooks where the data tells a story and that's the key thing. Uh, and, and we're learning it together. And I've had business analysts look at me and say, wow, all you're really doing is taking data, enriching it a little bit, putting it in like a little temp table or another area of the data lake, and then you're enriching a little more, and then you're doing that, and then we're building some visualizations and we're thinking through problems. So yeah, that's all we do. This is not difficult stuff, right? Uh, so then we sit with the business analyst and we find the nugget of gold. So just assume we write some queries, we figure out what that nugget of gold is, right? So now we're kind of done. Right. So a lot of times what we'll find is we have to do an evaluation stage, but we found the business uh, thing that they asked us to find originally. And never do we do data modeling or ETL. Think about that for a second. But we do the evaluation stage and we say, now, what is this data, this nugget of gold that we found? And, you know, where should it ultimately go? Maybe it should go in the data warehouse. So now we know, right? Okay, here's the nugget of gold we found. This is what it looks like. And now a data modeler can come in there and say without any doubt, well, that's simple. That should go in the fact table over here, or that should be in this dimension or that junk dimension or whatever the situation is. And we know because we've solved the problem, the modeling exercise is easier if we're going to do it. There's no, you know, so now we might have to do a little bit of ETL, but a lot of times we find in 2021, we don't need this data in the data warehouse. So what happens if, if the nugget of gold you're trying to find is something that's like forecast my sales for the next, uh, you know, two quarters. Okay. Well, you know, data warehouses tend to be historical data. So if I'm doing sales forecasting, why would I put that in the data warehouse anyway? Okay. Or here's, here's a common one. Marketing people love to say, uh, what percentage of my sales is attributable to my Facebook marketing efforts versus my Instagram marketing efforts? Okay. That really doesn't seem like data that I would want to necessarily put into a data warehouse. So maybe I don't need it there. Right. Or here's simple things, right? Uh, in 2021, we're trying to get more towards prescriptive analytics, prescriptive analytics, meaning what do I do next? Right. Business people always want to know what's the next thing I should do. Right. Well, again, if I'm trying to say what should my next brand campaign be, I'm going to do some you know, interesting things with data and I'm going to come up with hopefully an answer. Uh, but does that answer go in the data the warehouse? Does that need to be on a you know, Power BI dashboard? Uh, maybe it doesn't. And that's the key thing. Maybe it needs to be somewhere else. Uh, so I said a lot there. Yeah, yeah, no, that was that was awesome. There's a lot to unpack. We could probably spend an entire season kind of unpacking that, but 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 I'll I'll kind of take it back to I'll boil it down to the simplest thing. Data warehouses, and Andy can can keep me honest here. Uh, so could you, Dave? Data warehouses kind of stem from the from the era of you had your OLTPs and your OLAPs, right? Online transaction processing and online analytical processing, right? They were split out originally, were they not? Because you didn't want people doing the number crunching to mess with the people doing the actual sales, right? And the real-time data. Is that is that a, a gross simplification? Is it on the mark or what? I, I agree with that. Yeah, me too. But now in the age of the cloud, when you have kind of this elastic compute or elastic databases, 
that kind of reason for existence, I know there's a fancy French term for that, but um, there's a there's a reason for that is kind of gone now, assuming you've gone entirely on uh, into the cloud where there's more elastic compute. Is that is that is that also the case? Uh, well, my answer would be partially. Uh, so yes, you are correct. Uh, I, I don't think this is 1997 anymore, where the Oracle DBA says, "Thou shalt not run analytics queries that bring my website down." Uh, <laughs> these systems are resilient, like you said. But however, you know, a lot of times when I'm doing those analytics with the business uh, analyst and we're trying to write those queries, we have to bring in data from multiple places. So even if I hit the OLT, per, you know, server directly, and the DBA doesn't slap my hand for that. Uh, you know, I still need to bring in data from other places and be able to do analytics on that. So, um, you know, a lot of times we can do what you're saying, but a lot of times we can't too, at least not in 2021 as it stands. So it's not a siloed system for the sake of performance. It may be a siloed system for sake of orchestration. Yeah, exactly. Yep. And then a lot of times these systems of record, these transactional systems, they're meant to be transactional systems. Uh, they're not necessarily meant to keep history. When we do this stuff as a data scientist in the data lake, uh, data lakes are structured uh, on the kind of longitudinal access. So they're structured by time, essentially. Uh, so what I mean by that is if you look at a data warehouse, you may have a fact table that has the, the order information down to potentially the, the order line level. And that's interesting. Okay. That's the grain of detail, but that doesn't tell the full life cycle of the order, right? So the full life cycle of the order goes all the way back to the user came to my website based on what refer. Was it Instagram? Was it Facebook? Right. Uh, once they got in, how long were they sitting, uh, you know, before they made a decision to put it in their shopping cart? Uh, how long was the product in the shopping cart before they hit buy? Uh, you know, all these types of things mo aren't in most data warehouses and they're structured potentially, uh, potentially when you're looking at the analytics on the time axis. Uh, so the time axis is much better done in a data lake. Um, I can say more on that, but I'll let you respond. That's an interesting thing, what you're talking about, like the, because we've all had those experiences where we'll search for something, we'll even put it in our Amazon cart. And I can say Amazon because I don't work at Microsoft anymore. Uh, but I mean, clearly this is being done. And I don't know, do you know for a fact or is it conjecture that these big kind of retailers, e-retailers, you know, they're not using traditional data warehouses? Well, again, a lot of times they, they do have, uh, you know, a lot of that information, the entire sales lifecycle in a data warehouse somewhere. But here's the thing. It goes into the data warehouse once it becomes operational. So once I just need to put it in a report, then it goes into the data warehouse. And I'm fine with that. Uh, it's just remember the most important thing if I'm trying to figure out. So let, let's take a different canonical use case here. OK, let's say you're a marketing department and you invest $10 million a year in Facebook advertising and your marketing team comes to you and they say, hey, we want to do Instagram, right? How much money should we spend on Instagram? Should we even spend money on Instagram, right? Now, think about your average data warehouse. Is it going to be able to answer that question? Is it going to be able to answer that question in a timely manner? I don't think so, right? So here's where we start gathering data about our users, right? We do customer segmentation, all this kind of stuff in what I call a system of insight. And a system of insight is forward looking, right? It's not necessarily the history uh, that you would have in, in a data warehouse. And these things, again, they're much better done in a data lake uh, 
All right, but don't get hung up on the terms. You know, you can do this stuff in a standard database. What I'm suggesting is you don't need to do it in a star schema format where there's a, a, this heavy reliance on, on, on modeling the data correctly in the star schema, getting the data ETL'd correctly into that star schema, uh, and then dealing with the slowly changing, you know, dimension type two. If I'm simply asking, uh, or if I'm simply answering the question, should I invest in Instagram marketing, okay? Do I even need a Power BI report for that? I don't even know what that would look like, right? And this is what, you know, again, we've all seen the slides, right? You know, hmm. oh, uh, you know, uh, Mr. CTO, Mr. CEO, you want to take your data team from the descriptive analytics to the predictive analytics to the, you know, the prescriptive uh, analytics. So what they're saying there is the rearview mirror to the ML and the predictive to the what do I do next? And, you know, executives look at those slides and they go, yeah, yeah, I want that. But they don't know what the words mean. And what the words mean is really I, I just need to answer a question with data that normally I would answer with my gut. <laughs> and and I want to be, you know, more or less uh, data driven on that. So, you know, maybe when you look at that data, you start to realize if, if I'm going back to that Facebook versus Instagram conversation, maybe when I do the analytics, the overlap between my Facebook users and Instagram users is 80, 85 percent. And it makes absolutely no sense to do an Instagram marketing right. campaign. So now you just saved yourself potentially $10 million in an Instagram spend, not to mention you gave your customers a better experience because they're not getting bombarded from, you know, by your advertisements on yet another platform. So Dave, I would, I'd like to give you props on uh, product placement there for mentioning data-driven in your last <laughs> segment. So appreciate you that. that. Well, <laughs> I like we, that. we need all the help we can get. I promise. <laughs> um, I love what you're saying. I, I, as a, a, you know, a practitioner of data warehousing for decades now and ETL, um, some of the things that, that I think about when I hear, and you're not the only person I've heard say this stuff, uh, some of the things I think about are things like data quality and master data management, and that's hard to do anywhere. How does that play into uh, your strategy in, you know, in using a data like like object? Okay, I'm going to say something controversial here. Let me just no. let me finish. My <laughs> Go ahead. Let, let me finish my thought before you jump down my throat. Okay, but I'm going to tell you right now, data quality doesn't matter. Okay, let me say that again. Data quality doesn't matter. Okay, so interesting. Uh, I talked to a CTO of a hospital system, maybe it was before the pandemic, right? Mm -hmm. And we were talking about interesting things he could do with his hospital data, right? Uh, as far as the, the prescriptive and, and so forth. And he looked at me, pounded his hand, his fists on the table. Now he was the CTO, he was also an MD. So this guy's a smart guy, okay? Yeah. Uh, and he said, we're not doing another data project until the data quality improves, right? And I said to him, you know, data quality doesn't matter. And everybody in the room was like, whoa, because this guy's hot button was data quality. And I said, let me just explain what I mean by that, okay? If you're in the nuclear uh, industry, data quality matters. If you're in healthcare, data quality matters, okay? If you're designing a system that does accounting and debits don't equal credits, the first thing will happen is accountants will never use your system again because debits didn't equal credits, data quality sucks. So data quality matters in certain cases. But when I hear statements like, you know, well, what about the data quality? And we're not doing data projects until our data quality improves. I, I question that because you're saying one thing 
but your actions are doing something totally different. So I see this with a lot of customers. They have the same data quality projects going on for 20 years. And why is that? And again, I think it's because executives, so the C-suite, they hear from the IT and the data groups, data quality sucks. And they don't know what that means, so they regurgitate it. And they say, hey, data quality sucks. We're not doing data projects till data quality improves, all that kind of stuff. Okay, right. But here's the thing. If you had serious bugs in your code, what we call in the, hospital, in the healthcare industry critical clinicals, where you know it's going to cause a problem and somebody's going to die, or if it's in the new uh, you know field, uh, you know we're going to have a, you know a Chernobyl style event, then obviously we would fix those bugs, right? And we've all fixed bugs on data quality when you know a system went out and it wasn't properly tested. So those types of data quality issues will we would have fixed already. Okay. So that's the first thing. Second point is uh, a lot of times, you know, we think data is of bad quality, but really our understanding of the data is what is lacking. So every time we do hackathons with customers and we bring data into a data lake, and let's say it's Salesforce data or SAP data, we'll start writing some queries and something will happen. And, you know, again, my debits don't equal my credits or my sales totals don't match what's coming out of the system of record. And then, you know, an executive will sit there or a business person will say, see, this is what I'm talking about. All the data in our company is, is bad, garbage in, garbage out, and they'll start throwing the platitudes. And I sit there with a smirk and I think to myself, Oh, you're, you're a profitable company, <laughs> you know, you're a multi-billion dollar uh, Fortune 500 company. I doubt that the system of record for your accounting data or your CRM system or your ERP system is wrong. My guess is I'm not smart enough to write a, a, a decent query for you, right? And that's usually what it comes down to. And we'll come back and, you know, we'll say, hey, you know, why am I seeing this? And then somebody will say, well, your query's wrong, you idiot. And then I'll fix it. And suddenly the data quality problems go away. With As a data scientist, we see data you know, quality problems all the time. Uh, and honestly, data scientists love dirty data because it's the dirty data that give you the nuggets of wisdom, right? Now we sit there and ask the question, why is the data dirty? And that becomes a very interesting thing, right? Uh, like so there's signal data? in the noise. You got it, right? And and that's very valuable information. So uh, here, I'll give you a quick uh, uh, use case here. I was called in uh, as a data scientist a number of years ago, and it was for a call center. And they said, hey, we want to do real-time you know, call center analytics, all, all this kind of stuff. So they used a third-party call center management software system, and we started ingesting the data in real time into the data lake. And we're ingesting it. We gave them some basic reports and said, just verify this stuff is right. The guy looks at me. He's looking at the data. He goes, huh, I knew it. And I said, what does that mean? And he said, well, look, he says, it says the average time our people are on the phone are three and a half hours a day. He said, look at this report I get from the vendor. It's saying they're on the phone six hours of the day. He says, now look out the window. He says, they're all eating lunch and smoking cigarettes. I know they're not on the phone, but the report's telling me it is. So in other words, the data quality is bad. He says, your report's not showing that issue. So the first thing I, I do is I say, hey, you know, it's probably me. I'm, I'm not that smart, <laughs> right? And so I went back to the vendor and I said, hey, we're calling your API at night, at midnight. And, you know, you're saying the guys are on the phone six hours. I'm, I'm looking at your real-time data feed through a different API. I'm saying it's three and a half hours when I aggregate the logins and the logouts and that kind of stuff. What am I doing wrong? And the guy looked at it and he said, you know what? Give me 24 hours and we'll have the problem fixed. Here, I uncovered a bug in his data quality, pointed it out to him. He went and he fixed his data. Uh, and that happens a lot, right? So use these opportunities to say, hey, we found some problems. 
go and fix them. The last thing you want to do as an executive is fund, this is my opinion, a data quality initiative, right? Because I, data quality initiatives that are driven from the IT organization, they're boondoggles, right? They're never going to succeed. And this is what executives hate. Now, if the business comes in and they say, our data quality in the SAP system is terrible and we're funding an initiative to fix it. And here's the 10 things that we can't live without. And, you know, because the data quality is bad, we're going to fix it. And those types of, of data quality projects, obviously, they're going to succeed or they have a better chance of succeeding because they're driven from a business problem. Right. But uh, data quality isn't a destination. It's a journey. No, I get it. I really loved your, uh, you know, the fact that you pointed out that there is some uh, there's some baby in the bathwater there that you can, you know, sometimes an outlier is just some crazy data point that you want to ignore. But there are other times where you want to count that and maybe even search for them. It depends on if you're doing in inclusive or exclusive filtering. And you know way about, you've probably forgotten way more about this than I'll ever know. But I get that. I understand what you're saying. And sometimes that is the gold nugget. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Hey, I'll give you a quick story. Sometimes data quality is what you don't want. Sometimes you want dirty data. Absolutely. So uh, I was doing some data. So now that sounds weird. No, uh, I get I it. I was doing some data science work for a large city, uh, one of the largest cities, if not the largest city in the United States, and they have multiple hospital systems. And they said, we want you to match. This is years ago, years ago, uh, probably 15 years ago. And they said, uh, we want to match up from all these different uh, systems of record for, for patients. We want to match up all the patients and we want to create one golden record. Uh, so we That's did that. Awesome. That we did that. <laughs> we tested it all. We, we swear we had it right. And they went out and they put it in production. Here's the problem. Okay. Uh, <laughs> again, they were gaming the system, the patients. Okay. And some of these places, uh, they do like drug rehab type of places. Okay. And they knew they could get, uh, you know, their methadone treatments if they went to the first place where they, the patient information was in and maybe the, their birthday wasn't right or their social security number wasn't right. Then they could walk down the street, go to a different methadone clinic and get the same a dose with slightly different patient information. When we fixed those issues, suddenly they weren't able to get all the methadone they needed, caused a major health crisis. Quickly, they came back and said, undo all of your data quality initiatives oh, after the dirty data wow. because we, you know, we have a major crisis. And yeah, that's a true story. <laughs> that's uh, interesting and scary all at the same time. Yes, scary. Definitely scary. <laughs> there was, uh, I think this might have been pre-Microsoft. I was in a room um, with some interesting folk. <laughs> uh, and for those that don't know, I'm in a DC area, so the interesting folk can be very interesting. And they were talking about a similar problem, how certain, certain bad actors would intentionally misspell their name um, so they would get off of certain lists. And because their names were not in the uh, regular alphabet, as we know it, the Latin alphabet, they were able to get away <laughs> with that pretty well. And mm. this, uh, it, it was an interesting conversation. So it's fascinating how even little stuff like that becomes a problem at these institutions. You know, you'll, you'll, you know, I mean, my last name has two, is split up into two parts, but not every system recognizes that. So yeah. if I, like, so I, I mean, I, I kind of deal with that a lot. So I can imagine that. And, and, and there's also stories where somebody changed, put their license plate as null. 
<laughs> and like the nightmare that that caused and and people whose last name is null like <laughs> causes a lot of problems and it's just interesting stuff and if you've not heard the seen the cartoon about little bobby tables just use google or bing and find the find it it's hilarious um but um it, it, it's it's interesting that that because you're right i mean if you if you kind of say you know we're not going to do this until our data quality problem is fixed. And I think you're right. I think it's regurgitated because you want you people get weird about their data and not just their personal data, but their organizational data. In fact, one of the earliest uh, consulting gigs I actually didn't get because I was telling them like, well, you know, I was I scoped out the project and I said, well, the first week I'm going to evaluate it and start, you know, cleaning the data. And then this customer said, no, 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 our data is already clean. It's everything's in normalized form. And I was like, mm. um, yeah, that's not <laughs> what I meant, you know, and, and and so ever since then, I kind of go to use the term shaping the data because that that doesn't tick anyone off the wrong way. Yeah. Um, yeah. You, you got to avoid those kind of trigger words. Right. Right. Now, that's that's I mean, it's interesting. So, yeah. So. When would you want a, a data warehouse like it's not necessarily, you know. When would you want one? Well, uh, I, <laughs> I guess the snarky answer would be possibly never. Uh, right, right. Well, I mean, that's a good question because, I mean, is data warehousing, the whole OLTP versus OLAP, is that an artifact of, like you said, the late 90s or when you, 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 you owned the metal? And if you needed to upgrade the metal, you had to buy the metal and install it, not go to the Azure portal and just click, you know, up, you know, <laughs> like what is it a relic of a time gone by? It, it might be. Um, I'll tell you this. Here's how I look at it. When I, what I don't like about data warehouses is the star schema and it's the, it's the slowly changing dimension type two. Uh, so when you ask the average, you know, uh, ETL developer or just an IT manager and even a CTO and you say, you know, your last, just thought, thought exercise here for everybody. Uh, the last time you developed an ETL system for a data warehouse, okay? Uh, how much of your time was spent developing the queries for the SCD type two? And what was the percentage breakdown? Usually it comes back, this is anecdotal, don't hold me to this, but whenever I ask this question to customers, it usually comes down to, well, you know, 20% uh, of our ETL is just, you know, getting stuff in the facts and dims, and then the 80 the, the remaining 80% is, is trying to figure out how to do the SCD type two stuff, you know, expire the previous row, build a new row, that kind of stuff, right? Say, so, okay, 80%, got it, okay? How many of your queries are actually looking at those historical, expired, non-active SCD two type rows? And they'll say probably about 5% of the reports. Okay, well, you, you seem to have violated the Pareto principle there in theory, and that's my big problem. We spend a lot of time getting data into that historical format and very few people are using it. And when we talk about self-service analytics, the average business analyst gets confused by, you know, the SCD type two. Hey, I see customer one, two, three, five times in my table. Why is that? And then you got to explain to them, well, only you got to take your query and say, you know, is active equals one because the rest is the history. Okay, if you do stuff like is in a data lake and, and this kind of gets into the weeds a little bit, but data lakes, again, if they're done correctly, and that's the key thing. A data lake is structured on the time dimension. So what I mean by that is I can go back and with a very simple query, I can rehydrate and get you 
the SCD type two for a given you know customer one two three uh, in no time flat. So my point is, uh, even if you're going to do a data warehouse, you might want to defer some of those decisions if you don't need them today, right? So when you talk to the average data warehouse practitioner, they'll say, "Hey, look, if we don't build the SCD two structures today, in six months they're going to ask for them, and then I'm going to have no history, and then I'm going to get myself in trouble." And what I'm saying is, in the data lake, you get it for free. It's not a modeling exercise. It's not an ETL effort. You get the SC, you get the history, I should say, for free. Now you can say, hey, I'm going to defer the SCD2, you know, ETL code until a later date when it's proved it's needed, right? One last thing, uh, a lot of times when we're doing uh, as data scientists, okay, and people get confused as to what a data scientist is, and it might be like an interesting conversation to talk about that, but data scientists, you know, what they're looking for, you know, primarily is looking at, at life cycles of things, uh, you know, how do things change over time, right? But the thing with a data scientist is, and, and this goes for pretty much anybody uh, that's doing analytics is they want to see everything on the row. So what I mean by that is data scientists will say, uh, you know, whereas a, a, a normal data practitioner will say, I have rows and columns in data science land, the rows are called observations and the columns are called the features, right? But here's the thing with data, most data science algorithms, one row cannot refer to the previous row or the next row. Every piece of data used for that row or that observation has to be on the row. Okay. So what I mean by that is think about this. If I'm if I'm using a data warehouse and, and it's got slowly changing dimension type two, every time some attribute of the customer changes, I get a new row. Right now, think about what that does to the data scientist. They have to take that data and pivot it so that all those additional rows go back to being one row. Okay, so I did for three or four years uh, <laughs> uh, consulting uh, where we would go in and optimize, uh, do performance tuning on data science uh, algorithms. And it's very simple. Again, thought exercise here for the data scientists. You, you need to write an algorithm that does something, okay? Predicting sales, doesn't matter what it is. Let's just say all of your R code or your Python code or your SAS code is 500 lines of code. How much of that is actually manipulating data, right? And you, thoughtfully, most people will say it's probably about 400 lines of the 500. And then the last 20% is the actual algorithm. And then you say, yep, that's about right anecdotally. And then you say, what are you doing, right, uh, in that data manipulation? And when you look at the code, invariably, people are taking the data warehouse and they're repivoting all the rows back into one row, right? And then we ask data scientists, you know, you know, which are, you know, it's the hottest paying job right now in IT. Uh, we say, you know, why, why do data scientists stay at a job for six months and then go on to another place? Is it because they're getting more money? Eh, maybe. But usually when you ask them, they'll say, oh, I just hate the processes and the data at the last place I worked. Dig a little deeper in that. And invariably, it's because they're doing what they need to do off of the data warehouse. And it's so frustrating to do pivot table queries uh, when you, it's not needed. Give somebody a structure that's meant for analytics and not reporting. Uh, and again, that's kind of the notion of the data lake. And suddenly life becomes easier. Interesting. So okay. I know Andy's chomping at the bit to ask you a question. but I am. Yeah, I'm just, I, I'm, you know, I'm enjoying the, um, the contrast. Uh, that you're making um, one. I have a couple of things, but the one thing I would say to you is, um, you know, I've, I've been using some 
some other tools that are available for ETL for years now, one called business intelligence markup language. Uh-huh. And yep. I estimate it takes me about two hours to develop a, a package in SSIS that does an incremental load. Okay. Um, and this isn't true for all projects. The project has to lend itself to, uh, to this. But I found that I, I just needed to replicate that pattern across hundreds of tables. And using that math, I did about 10 and a half months worth of work in three and a half days. So I, I agree with you. Yep. I just propose just kind of, you know, there are some automation efforts out there. And that's not the only one. There's other uh, tools on the market that try to solve that same problem. And you're right. The ETL taking 80 percent of the project is crazy. Um, unless you're billing by the hour, and then it's kind of awesome. I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> but um, one, of, one of the things that I, that I would like, and I don't know the right way to ask you this, and I'm not, I promise I'm not criticizing or anything, but I'm just curious how you would respond to, you know, are you just proposing like another modeling or, or you know, or project methodology? Uh, yes, I, I think that's a fair statement that you have. Uh, so you, you're right. A lot of it isn't just the, the data modeling and it's how we do, you know, data projects in general. So, you know, we all like to say, oh, we practice Scrum and Agile and some will say Kanban. Uh, you know, right. I, I, I'm not sure that those things lend themselves to, <laughs> to, to data projects either. Kanban's probably at least head and shoulders better than uh than anything else out there. But honestly, most data projects should be driven as lean projects. And what I mean by that is, is you know, and, and the problem is, is the economics aren't there for data consultants. But the way it should work in a perfect world, if there were no economics, we should go in and we should say to customers, you know, we're going to try some things here, right? And we're going to build an MVP and it's going to take two weeks and we want you to evaluate it. If it looks like we're moving in the right direction, continue with the project. If it doesn't, you know, it's a fail fast mentality, right? Can I, can I break, uh, break in here, Dave? I I agree with everything you just said. And in fact, I ran BI projects like that for 15 years. Yep. And, and most of the project, I called it phase zero. I go in and deliver in somewhere between, you know, a week and six weeks. And the whole idea was go ask the C-level or the person that was the customer, um, what is the first thing you look at when you get in in the morning to determine how's my business doing? And if I can get that metric, if I can get a, a big Dilbert button on the screen as the interface and it's either red, green or yellow. I'm done with Project Zero, you know, phase zero at that point. I'm, I'm doing well. I'm not doing well or things are bad. And then to expand that just a little bit, when you drill down, it would show you different areas, right? These areas are doing great. You're showing red. You know, these areas are doing great. These are in the yellow, but over here you're all red. And I just, I think that's, that. I think you get those kinds of results using, uh, again, the data lake-ish um, you know, metaphor that you're talking about. Is that fair or am I missing something? It's exactly right. So again, you know, even if you decide, uh, you know, after you find the, what I call the canonical, you know, nugget of gold, if you decide, hey, okay, we want to stick that, you know, that insight you found back into our data warehouse, then go ahead and do that. I I don't mind. Okay. Uh, You know, it's just, we've, we've proven the project at that point, right? The risk has been removed. 
The rest is we're just doing IT stuff at that point, right? Operationalization, you know, data governance, all that kind of stuff. And, and I'm fine with that. But at least we solved the business problem. And by the way, I 100% agree with you where, how you stated, you know, as data scientists, like we always talk about if we're going to provide a system of insight, it needs to be exactly what you said. It's a lot of, uh, in the industry, they call it system one thinking. I need to look at a dashboard and without any kind of cognitive load, am I doing good? Am I doing bad? You know, in what areas am I doing good? So forth and so on. So the stoplight analogy, basically. Well, I'm not as good at graphics as Frank. So I'm just huh? saying that I have to go with what I've got to, to work with here, Dave. No, but I, I absolutely love the focus is on the business because, you know, a lot of times the focus can get on something else and it could be any number of things. But, you know, a lot of people are drawn to new technology for new technology's sake. They may not know that that's the tech to use to solve this particular problem. I mean, the first time you use a particular technology, I don't know that you can know, at least with, you know, 100% certainty, or if you can ever know with 100% certainty, this is where we start. But if you, you can mitigate that by using the process you described, you know, way earlier, when you talk about just drop the data into a data lake or some structure like that. Start beating on it with some of the tools that are available. And, and you will find that it, it will actually, the data will lead you in the direction that you should go. And you've said this, you've said maybe the answer is after that, that it ends up in some data warehouse-ish structure. Maybe the answer is not. So I, I, I think we're on the same page here. We're trying to solve a problem for the, uh, for the customer. We want to make something repeatable and sustainable. We don't want to build tech just to build tech. Um, you know, we want to help uh, help customers achieve a, a goal here. Yeah. And, and the data lake thing, it for me, it's not really a technology as more of a mindset and a process. So if you want to think of it in people process technology lens, I view the data lake as really a process. I've built data lakes for customers in SQL Server. It can be done. You just have to do a couple of trade-offs. Um, but, you know, if your people know SQL, um, maybe that's a, a, you know, a fairly good choice. And honestly, um, you know, I know SQL better than Python or anything else. So when I'm doing like what I call, you know, uh, EDA in the industry, exploratory data analysis, I'm using SQL. And, and in the cloud, you know, you can actually do SQL against data lakes relatively inexpensively. That's true. Um, so, yeah. you know, it, 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 it's not like people have to learn an entirely new uh, technology, it, you know, and, and honestly, Andy, you're probably, when you write queries and you're doing, you know, exploratory data analysis and you're writing ETL, you probably do it just like me. So, you know, it's just, uh, more people kind of need to do that, if that makes sense. Well, yeah. I mean, we, yeah, I like to start off with profiling because, uh, you know, good data profiling will take me to some of the answers right away. It'll let me know, Hey, this is sparse. This is populated, so I maybe want to pick this part, you know, take this column apart or whatever, and and see what my categories are. And I again, I think there's a lot of similarities in um, in what we're talking about. I I don't unless if I'm building transactional data or a reporting um, data mart or data warehouse off of transactional data that has. Uh, you know, start dates and end dates, rows that expire, then sure, I'm going to do something that looks like a type two dimension. But, sure. and you're right, it's no fun 
to build all of that unless you've got a solid design pattern and you can drop it into a tool like Bemel and have it do all the work, you know, in about a minute. <laughs> so, but, but I get where you're going with it. You're right. There's a, and, and I don't know anybody who likes the idea of, you know, 80% of the data warehouse is not being read. There's rows in there that are just being sorted out by in SQL server, the, you know, the, the, um, the, not not profiler, what am I thinking? The optimizer, the query optimizer. You know, when you have rows in there that are just constantly being thrown out of results, that's that's no fun for everyone. But there are other models that'll work um, in a relational data warehouse. The one that I found compelling in a number of instances was a data vault. Yes. And it solves some of those problems. But again, you know, it, it's... Another way of acknowledging everything that you just said about moving to a data lake instead, um, it's because those problems exist in a star. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I think there's, a, there's more overlap here than there is a contrast, but I definitely was intrigued by listening to you explain uh, your thoughts on it. And I think you're right. I do. Yeah, I think ultimately we're just deferring things until later in the process, right? Definitely the modeling. We're saying defer that until we know we found, you know, that business nugget of gold. And then again, we're deferring the ETL. Possibly we're not even doing any ETL. And when I say that to customers, they say, how do you not do any ETL? Well, again, think about how I said that. First thing we do is we get data. And then we sit down with, you know, the business analyst and we massage data, we profile data, like you said, you know, we figure out how to get the data in a format that's that finds that nugget of gold. Well, everything I just described there is ETL. <laughs> it's just it's ETL with a purpose. That's well, hopefully it's all with a purpose. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, solving, it's solving a business problem versus right. a data movement problem. Most people think of ETL as a data movement problem. Right. It, it shouldn't be. It should be. It's a you know, I'm solving a business problem. I'm getting data into the format I need, you know, to find that nugget of gold. No, I like the way you approach it uh, in the interest of uh, shiny object syndrome. What are your <laughs> thoughts on uh, Delta Lake and the Databricks is big on their lake house platform? Uh, I, I really think that is the future. Um, yeah. I, I'm not sure we're there quite yet. Uh, but I envision the next five to 10 years of, of, you know, what I'll call, you know, prescriptive analytics to be, we, you know, more people start to understand what a data lake is. And by the way, it's not just I, a, a place I archive my CSVs after the ETL is done. It's a system, <laughs> <laughs> it's a system of insight. Okay. Uh, and so once people, you know, start to do that, then they'll come to the realization, you know, again, I can, you know, the big problem with data you know, lakes uh, versus data warehouses, in my opinion, customers will say, when do I need a data warehouse? Smart guy, you say, I don't need it. At what point do I need it? Okay, usually it comes down to when performance uh, is no longer acceptable in the data lake. So remember with the data lake, if you're doing it, you know, the way most people do data lakes is it's, you know, a bunch of files, hopefully optimized files with a compute engine, you know, that sits somewhere else. Uh, versus a, a typical data warehouse in Oracle or SQL Server, right? It's very, very, uh, you know, the data persistence engine, the storage engine is, you know, tightly coupled with the query engine and they're meant to work together and column store indexes are, you know, the cat's meow and all that kind of stuff. You're not going to have that with a data lake, right? So generally performance is not going to be, you know, so great. So, um, you know, maybe the data warehouse one point in the decision matrix is to say, you know, the data lake doesn't perform anywhere. I got to put it in a data warehouse. But, you know, to your point, 
uh, now with this this stuff Databricks has with the concept of the Delta Lake or the, you know, we call it the lake house. Again, maybe that's going away. Maybe you can say I can do SCD type two right out of my data lake. Uh, so maybe I don't need, uh, you know, a bespoke uh, or not a bespoke, a, a you know, a commercial uh, data warehousing, you know, optimized for star schemas uh, type tool. Maybe I don't need that anymore. Um, and it's possible. Interesting. Interesting. We could probably talk for hours on this. Yes. And uh, we'd love to have you back. Uh, but uh, we have a bunch of kind of pre-canned questions. Okay. Um, which I think some of these are going to be fun. And some of these are going to be interesting. Um, uh, so the first question is, how did you find your way into data? Did data find you or did you find data? Uh, so again, I was an intern uh, doing, you know, basically statistics uh, against, um, you know, some data sets uh, for, you know, a, a company that makes candy. Uh, so kind of data found me. And then I was a history major, honestly. Uh, really? So, yeah. And uh, I hated it, um, but it was a sunk cost fallacy. I was in two years and I didn't really feel like changing. Um, so I went to uh, QVC. Uh, after I graduated and I just wanted a help desk job. And, you know, I, I looked over one day and, you know, this woman was having problems with a SQL query. And I said, oh, here's what you do. It was in Teradata. And she said, you know, SQL. I said, what is the SQL of which you speak? Because I didn't know what it was. I just knew how to do it. You didn't see uh, the first movie. So yeah. how could you see? <laughs> and and that's how it worked. And and it was the same thing. Uh, QVC, you know, um, back in the at the time, they did interesting things with data, and it was a lot of, of you know, um, what should we, you know, advertise? When, you know, what time of the day should we advertise certain products and things like that? Uh, and all that done with analytics and statistics and just, uh, you know, very insightful type data science things. Most people think data scientists, you know, they're doing, you know, convolutional neural network programming and learning about back bracket backpropagation uh, through the network. And no, it's not that. Or, you know, I'm creating regression models. A lot of times data scientists are just, you know, they're basically asking questions that honestly pretty much, you know, anybody who, who understands how to query data intelligently can do, right? You know, that's what business people want in 2021. You know, they don't want another report that says, show me, you know, quarter over quarter sales or quarter to quarter sales. They want, they want data people that can come in and say, you know, what do I do next? Right. Uh, you know, what's the next best thing I should be doing, uh, you know, or, or or, you know, how should I structure my next brand campaign or uh, I've done all of these things to convert lead to leads to sales. You know, what are the things that are actually working? Um, and that's what they need. That's what they need help with. So you mentioned QVC. Were you down in Roanoke? I know they have a big operation there. No, uh, outside of Westchester, Pennsylvania. OK, OK. Very cool. So our next question is, what's your favorite part of your current gig? Uh, so I, I'm a boomerang at Microsoft. I worked at Microsoft before. Um, I like just, we have a lot of customers to come in. And like I said, uh, we talked to them about different things. Uh, earlier this week, I had an entire C-suite come in uh, to figure out how to monetize their data. Uh, that's fascinating. And then the other end of the spectrum is, you know, um, uh, another day this week, I can't remember what day we're even on. Uh, <laughs> we did a hackathon <laughs> on uh, like how to, how can we do interesting you know analytics uh, you know with our data. 
Um, so we get to do all the, that kind of stuff. And, and like Frank mentioned at the beginning, generally we're constrained to like at most we can work is three days. So it's nice. We can get in there, you know, you know, cause some, some grief and then we get to walk away and do it again with another customer. So, a lot of fun. I didn't know you were also boomerang. That's cool. Yes. Yep. Awesome. Uh, our third question is, and for those that don't know what a boomerang is, is when you leave Microsoft to come back. Yes. Um, we have a couple of complete the sentence uh, questions. When I'm not working, I enjoy blank. Uh, I go to the beach a lot. So I live close to the beach. That's my thing. Cool. So our next one is, I think the coolest thing in technology today is blank. Blockchain and cryptocurrency. Interesting. And the reason why is I think you're going to find in the future, it's going to seriously, we always talk about digital disruption. Yeah. It is the digital disruptor. So, I mean, just think of things like, you know, right now, if you're on Facebook, right, they're, they're mining all of your data. You're the product, right? right? Mm. Uh, and, and they're selling you. And if we just change the paradigm around and we have all of your data out in the blockchain, now you have the, the control, you can do it with it what you want, right? Uh, you could potentially monetize that for your own liking. And that's just one example, right? All this stuff you read about right now with NFTs, uh, non-fungible tokens, it's kind of laughable, frankly, but you can see there's a future in all of this. And uh, like, it's, it's going to be interesting. Indeed, indeed. Uh, our next question is another complete sentence. Uh, I look forward to the day when I can use technology to blank. <laughs> uh, that's a good one. Um, it, just be able to solve data problems faster. I mean, we're getting there, right? right. Uh, you know, if you're going to use BIML to build, you know, SCD type two, that's much better than it was 20 years ago. I think at some point we're going to get there quickly where, you know, we have data and we can do analytics on it in real time and, and hopefully it'll be soon. Interesting. So our question six is share something different about yourself, but remember it's a family podcast. <laughs> I don't really have anything that's different about myself. I, I mean, I just have a wife and two kids. Uh, you know, that's it. I'm, I'm really a very plain Jane individual. Plus you work at the MTC. Like that's like, that's well, like that. Yeah. I was telling I was telling my former uh so every MTC has what they call a director that kind of has fairly good autonomy over what that particular center does. And I was telling like um um when I when I said I was leaving my my the director was like, "Oh god, I got to find a replacement now." <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, cuz I mean, it you need someone with good technical understanding, good customer presence, um and someone who's willing and able to, you know, speak all day, which these engagements generally run, you know, what, from like 9 a.m. when they were in person, 9 a.m. to like 5 p.m. or 4 p.m. and virtually, I mean, it's basically, you know, one of the things I realized since taking the new job is like, wait, I'm not chained to my computer for like eight, nine hours a day. Like, <laughs> right. um, so as I said, it's like, yeah, you know, it's kind of like the Navy SEALs, you know, like not everyone, the, the people who can do it, maybe don't want to do it. And it's not for everyone, you know? So I would say just being in the MTC is kind of like kind of a big deal, I think. It is. And that's the reason I came back to Microsoft is because 
we have a lot of autonomy to do things and to say things that possibly other people can't. Uh, and, and I really kind of like that autonomy. Absolutely. Yeah, we're not part of the account teams and we're not measured on quota in the same way. I mean, there's probably some measurement, but um, but uh, but I mean, it's it's definitely a unique role. And I think it's it's something that, you know, because of the natural kind of shift in customer uh, account teams, like, you know, the, the MTC face is probably the one that the, the, the uh, customers get to know best, um, yes. you know, and um that's an interesting kind of story in and of itself. But uh, moving on, because we're we're kind of on the long side. But you know what, Andy? It's season five premiere. Like we can we can kind of do this. <laughs> this has been uh, an excellent show too. So oh, it totally yeah. has. It yeah. totally has. And um, you know, before we get to the last two questions, I'll definitely say, Dave, you're you're welcome back anytime. Yeah. Well, thank you. I would love to do that. That would be awesome. awesome. Um, and where can people speaking of which, where can people learn more about you? Uh, well, I'm on LinkedIn, uh, and I have a website. I, I doubt not more than three people go to it, but it's DaveWenzel.com. Cool. Well, we'll get you at least six people. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> so then my mother and who are the other five people? No. Uh, my <laughs> mom. I think Andy's mom. Sure. Yeah. Mom will, mom will check it out. <laughs> um, and uh, last question. Audible sponsors data driven. Can you recommend a good book? Yeah, from from so books that I reread every five years uh, is uh, Shantaram. If you've ever heard of that, it's no. spelled just like it sounds. Uh, it's it's a fiction book, um, but actually I think it's a partially true story. Um, I won't bore you with all the details, but basically a guy goes to prison for murdering somebody in Australia. He escapes, goes to India. Uh, he becomes a doctor, you know, helps the Indian people, uh, ends up going back to jail. He's tortured almost to death. Uh, all kinds of interesting things. It's a lot of plot twists and turns. Very fascinating uh, story. Um, very long story as well. Um, so that's fiction. Uh, for IT people, like everybody's probably read The Phoenix Project by, by now. Uh, if you haven't, definitely read that one. But the one that I find far more insightful than The Phoenix Project and every data person should read uh, or actually, I advise the audiobook, which is the audible point, uh, is is the goal. Uh, so the goal is by, um, I think it's pronounced Eli or Elihu uh, Goldrat. And it's basically, if you've read The Phoenix Project, it'll feel like a ripoff, but he actually wrote it 20 years before The Phoenix Project. Oh, wow. And if you're a software developer, the insights that you gain out of this, and it has nothing to do with software. It's, a, it's the journey of a guy that runs a manufacturing plant. So you're probably thinking to yourself, how does that, uh, you know, involve data. It doesn't, but the, the allegories that he tells on how to solve projects. Uh, if you're in software development, I, I can't recommend that enough. If you like the Phoenix Project, you will love this book. So, Interesting. Interesting. Well, uh, if you don't have Audible already, uh, you can go to thedatadrivenbook.com and uh, you'll be routed to uh, the Audible page, and uh, you'll be able to get one free book on us. And if you uh, decide to become a subscriber after that, uh, Audible will kick us back enough to buy a cup of coffee at Starbucks. There we go. Nice. And any last words? No, this was great. Thank you. Really appreciate this. Awesome. Uh, this was. This is. I've been listening to your podcast for years. You guys are great. And I. Oh, I, I think I've said this before. I've been following Andy for probably feels like 20 years. Uh, he's, definitely, <laughs> he's, he's definitely a big wig in the SQL server industry. And I came up 
through that, you know, learning pretty much everything I know. I keep telling Andy, like on the MTC, like internal chains chats, which I know you're, you're on that, that uh, the Northeast uh, data and AI thing, which I do miss. I miss that thread. Anyway, uh, Andy's name comes up in like hushed and reverent tones quite a bit. Oh, absolutely. Like, I'm like, he doesn't you know, believe me. Like I've screenshotted yeah, like no, things. I'm like, no, they're talking about you. you. <laughs> I believe it's just, you know, my response to that, Frank, I repeated it over and over again. It's like, I've been trapped in here with me for 57 years and I am just not that impressed. I'm just saying. <laughs> sure it was just, funny. I think Dave got the joke. Um, yeah. Somebody posted. Um, I think Dave knows where I'm going with this is that, um, I, uh, somebody said, "Oh, Andy's Andy. You know, basically, check this book by Andy Leonard. Andy Leonard stuff is great." And 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 I wrote back, "Yeah, he has a podcast too." And I put a link, and then I put with a <laughs> smiley face. But his co-host is a bit of a jerk. <laughs> That's and... not true. My co-host is awesome. <laughs> He's not a jerk at all. But the first person to laugh at it was Dave. So. Yes, yeah. <laughs> I got the joke right away. <laughs> Y'all I don't think the original awesome. poster did. I'm, I'm not no, sure about that. Did not. <laughs> <laughs> well, awesome, Dave. It's always a pleasure. Um, any parting words, Andy? Thank you, Dave, so much for this. I love the back and forth. Um, I'd love to work with you on something, man. That'd be fun. Yeah, let's do it. Awesome. <laughs> awesome. All right, and I'll let the nice British lady finish the show. Thanks for listening to Data Driven. And thank you for making this show a success. You know, Frank and Andy won't admit this very often, but they weren't sure that the show was going to last three seasons. So, here's a heartfelt thank you from an AI who would be out of work if it were not for you. I don't get sentimental very often, so soak it up while it lasts. By the way, we know you're busy and we appreciate you listening to our podcast. But we have a favor to ask. Please rate and review our podcast on iTunes, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you subscribe to us. You have subscribed to us, haven't you? Having high ratings and reviews helps us improve the quality of our show and rank us more favorably with the search algorithms. That means more people listen to us, spreading the joy. And, can't the world use a little more joy these days? Now, Go do your part to make the world just a little better and be sure to rate and review the show.